reading Time Magazine, oh, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and uh, they had a cover story that said, Secrets of the Nativity. Anybody see that? Anybody get Time Magazine? A few of you, okay. I was going to bring it in and show you, but I was actually reading it in the bathtub and I dropped it. So, uh, <laughs> not much left of it. Uh, but anyway, I, read, I was reading this article about Secrets of the Nativity and it was going on and on and pretty soon actually I just got completely bored of it because it was just kind of this new, new revelations about the nativity and you always think, uh, huh? I mean, how do you get new revelations about something that's, you have no artifacts, you have nothing, 2,000 years ago and, and now there's new revelations. So it kind of got into a lot of speculation and different things. But it is an interesting question because people have raised that question in scholarly circles. Did the nativity actually really happen or not? And so as I was reading the paper yesterday afternoon, I was looking at uh, this uh, section in Faith and Values on the Minnesota, Minneapolis Star Tribune. And it was a section that said, did the nativity actually happen? Did it really happen? You, should you believe that it happened? And three different pastors wrote in, their views. And I thought this one was so great from this guy by the name of Peter Bolke, I think his name is. He's a pastor of Good Shepherd United Methodist Church in St. Paul. And I just got to read this. Dude. This is the best. He says, oh, yes, absolutely. Good start. And then he says, here's my tradition's unique adventure. I'll just stop right there. I'm always impressed by people that can write. I can't write. I can barely talk. So, but this guy can coin a phrase. This is just a great phrase. He says, at the fulcrum of history, in a land at the crossroads of the armies, during a time when the empire was enrolling everyone for homeland security, the love that fires the universe sneaks into the world in the womb of a young Jewish girl, and the divine and human become one. Isn't that great? Gosh, that's just awesome. I mean, and from a Methodist guy, too. <laughs> One of my favorite, ah, just a minute. It's a Baptist church, so I can razz on him a little bit. My favorite line from the movie, A River Runs Through It. You ever seen that movie? There's a movie in River where he's a Presbyterian pastor, and his son is dating a Methodist. And he thought, oh, my gosh, he's dating a Methodist. This is the worst thing. And he said, well, Dad thought so lowly of Methodists, he only really thought that they were Baptists who could read. Huh? Anyway, um, this is awesome. The love that fires the universe sneaks into the world in the womb of a young Jewish girl and the divine and human become one. The, this good news is announced to the lowest and poorest. Whatever you believe, don't sit around for years on end reading the newspaper, scratching your head trying to befriend the facts, Get yourself to the grandest cathedral or a pathetic little church. A homeless shelter or prison will do. Sing the songs of the season. Watch children in bathrobes as wise men. Feed the hungry. Proclaim release to the captives. Light a candle and hold it up in the darkness, confessing a word that is as beautiful as it is true. Isn't that awesome? That's great. I tried to find his website to... You know, write him an email saying I, I, he doesn't have a website, so it must be a, it's kind of a smaller church or something, but it's over in St. Paul. I thought that was great. Yes, it matters. The nativity happened. It happened. We saw a reenactment here just a few weeks ago, so we know that it happened. <laughs> but it really did happen. 
just like any other event. And I find it interesting that people start raising these scholarly questions about whether it happened in, you know, we know just as well that that happened that we did Abraham Lincoln existed or Julius Caesar or anything else. The nativity did happen. We're in our fourth and last week of a four-part series called Joy to the World. We've been looking at Isaac Watts's hymn, or we now call it a Christmas carol, the four stanzas of that Christmas carol. And we've been looking at one of them each week. The first week, we looked at the first verse, which says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And we talked about how long they were waiting. They were waiting, 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 Israel, the nation, for a Savior to come. And he did come in the form of Jesus Christ. And it says, the joy to the world. The Lord is come. He's here. Then the, the next week we looked at joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Isaac Watts does the same thing that this pastor from St. Paul did. And he just uses the English language in a way that, oh, it makes you think. And he says, let men their songs employ. While, uh, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Employ your songs. In other words, if God is truly reigning, if he's truly come, then it's our job to be satisfied in him and be joyful in him. That's your job. Let men their songs employ. Isn't that a great phrase? Last week you looked at the phrase, far as the cursed is found from the third stanza, which says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And we talked last week, if you remember, we talked about you won't understand the blessing of Christ unless you understand the curse of God. Don't blame Satan here. Satan, sure, he tempted Adam and Eve, but God is the one who cursed the ground. He's the one who cursed the serpent so that there was enmity between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. And so God put the world under a curse because of our, in the form of Adam and Eve, because of our disobedience. And as far as that curse is found, it has now been removed as far as the punishment is. We still live in a fallen world. We still live where things are not the way they should be. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've taken his finished work on the cross and said, yes, Jesus Christ, I take you. And I don't care if you're Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Catholic, whatever. It doesn't matter. If you've trusted Jesus Christ for your sin, he's your sin bearer, then the curse, the penalty of the curse is removed. That's an awesome thing. And I think so often we get caught up in these holidays of Easter and Christmas and Good Friday and other ones, we just kind of go through the motions and we forget how awesome it is. And so last week I tried to paint you a picture of being, if you remember, being caught in a hole in the middle of a lake and someone comes and pulls you out and puts you in front of a fireplace. You don't appreciate that fireplace until you realize how desperate you are in the middle of that hole in the lake. This week we want to look at the last verse. It says, He rules the world with truth and grace. So God's in control. He rules the world with two things, truth and grace. And then he does something. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. It says he makes them prove this, is what Isaac Watts is saying, the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And I got caught on that last phrase, and wonders of his love. Fundamentally, everybody in this room, 
fundamentally, what you want more than anything else is to be loved. I don't have to be a genius to say that. I know that. You know that too. Fundamentally, you don't really care what you get for Christmas. You just want to make sure that there's, there's some love attached to that gift, or, or if it's not a gift at all, there's some love. Last night, right before I went to bed, I turned on the Eyewitness News Channel 5, and I saw a story which was about now six years old, but it was a story of a man by the name of Joe Smarzik. And Joe had been divorced at the time of the story in 1998. He had been divorced for many, many years. And he had done something, I think it was 40 years, 20 years previous to that, in 1978. He was having such a miserable time being 20 years divorced and his family had kind of separated from him and he gave kind of the circumstances for that. He lived in a little town in southwestern Minnesota called Walnut, Walnut Grove, Minnesota. And he described himself, he said, every Christmas I sit here and I'm just intensely lonely. And he's, as he's describing this to the camera, tears are coming down this elderly man's uh, face. So he gets an idea. In 1978, he gets an idea and he puts into uh, the local newspaper an ad. And it says this, big headlines, right in the ads, it's way, they showed a picture of it. It's bigger than the normal classifieds and it just says, wanted. One family to share Christmas with. I will supply the turkey. And this pastor out of Tracy, Minnesota, which I, I really don't, I know Minnesota very well. Neither one of these towns I've ever been to. But Tracy must be close to Walnut Grove, eh? Anybody? Is it? Okay, good. <laughs> This pastor reads that, and he says, we'd love to have you over. So for the next 20 years, up until his death, and even at his death, that, that, that new family surrounded this man in love. And it was a, it was a heart-wrenching, uh, it was a beautiful story that they showed on Christmas Day. I'm convinced that what you want, what I want more than anything else, is to know that those around us who matter to us, the people that matter to us especially, that they love us. Not that they only like us, not that they put up with us, but that they actually love us. Now, as heart-wrenching as that is, more fundamental is that you need to know that the maker of you, the one who knows every hidden secret, even some that you're even in denial about and aren't even thinking about, he knows everything about you what does he think about you? Psalm 62, verse 11 and 12, talks about this awesome God who also has another factor to him. And it says, One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O oh God, are strong. You're awesome. And that you, O oh God, are loving. Why don't you just for a second to think about how dangerous it would be for a God to be just the first and not the second. We would not be singing songs of joyous, joyousness today. I, we would not be doing that. We would be in sackcloth and ashlas. I don't even know what that exactly looks like. But we would be wearing it. And it would be miserable. Because we'd have no hope. We have no hope in this world of, of anything being ever just exactly right. It isn't, and it won't be. And we have no hope in the life to come because meeting your maker is a very scary thing because 
You've sinned against him. You have no hope. But he's loving you. Isaiah 57, 15, one of the verses that this church is founded on, says, For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. So there's a picture of God as awesome and holy and mighty and majestic and all that. And don't diminish that. I think oftentimes people, when they want to say God is loving, they take him down and make him kind of a Santa Claus kind of a figure. Nothing against Santa Claus, but God is awesome. Don't, don't diminish that. That's who he is. And he says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You've got to have this picture in your mind. This picture of this infinite God, just massive, majestic, whatever your mind's eye, however you picture God seated on his throne or whatever, just huge. And then he's on one knee holding the hand of someone who's going through a hard time, the contrite, the lowly. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus Christ came and he lived three years and did a public ministry to show that. To show how an awesome God relates to people. And he got in trouble for it. Jesus hung out with not the so cool people. Jesus hung out with people who were sinners and, and, and tax collectors. And in Luke chapter 15, he's actually getting in trouble for it. So if you want to flip open your Bible to Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to land the rest of our time today. Or if you want to look at that insert or look at the screen, it's fine. I want you to get a picture of how God thinks about you this morning from Luke chapter 15. How does God feel towards you? Jesus is hanging out with people that, you know, they're, they're not the right kind of people. Think about that and I think if like, Donald Trump were to come to town and he were to get off the, 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 get off the airport here and he were to come and he were to go sit at my McDonald's and just talk with uh, all of the people who work there. Of course, my McDonald's, you'd have to speak Spanish to do that. <laughs> but, but, and so he would. Maybe he would interact with them in Spanish and, and, and just have a great time speaking with these people who on the level of employment are on very, very entry-level positions. That, just, that doesn't seem right for Trump to do that. Well, think, multiply that by a million. Here's God incarnate, and he comes down. He doesn't hang out with kings and princes and wealthy people. He hangs out with the, the normal folk. Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people of the day, they muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that didn't sit well with them at all. If this, guy truly, if this guy is truly who he says he is, there is something wrong with this picture. So Jesus goes on to tell him a story. By the way, when, when people are muttering about Jesus and then the, the passage next says, and Jesus went to tell him a story, hang on because Jesus is going to tell you a story that's going to trick you and rebuke you. It's coming. And that's what's going to happen to them. He always does that. And another time is when people ask Jesus a question and he says, well, let me ask you a question. You're dead meat. When he asks you a question back, or he says, let me tell you a story, you're done for. And here's one of those times where Jesus is going to tell him a story. In fact, it's three stories, but Luke, Luke says Jesus told them a parable, 
And then he, he says he continues on. There's three parts to it. The first part, he says, is a lost sheep. A guy has 100 sheep and he loses one. He says, wouldn't he leave the 99 and go and look for the one? Then this woman has lost a coin. I don't know about you, but man, something within us likes to find things, even if we don't need them. You know what I mean? I think keys were designed to give me a heart for other people because that's the heart people... God has for other people. You know what I'm saying? I can never find my keys. I, I just turned 42 and it's getting worse. I, I put my keys down on my glasses is another one because I'm nearsighted and I need to see them when I'm far away but not when I'm near. And so I'm always putting my glasses down and I'm always going back to the restaurant or wherever. I'm always losing things. And there's something within you that says, I got to find that. It drives me nuts because I've lost something. That's what happened here. A woman has lost a coin in the house. She sweeps the entire house until she finds it. She just won't rest until she finds it. Then it says Jesus continued in verse 11. He's continuing on with this story. And I, you maybe have heard this story before. I know I wanna, maybe I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but the, the father in the story is God. Because I want you to see the father heart of God. I want you to see the wonders of his love this morning. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. Now, just stop right there for a second. You've got to understand in that culture how incredibly offensive that statement is right there. What he's saying is, old man, you're not dead yet. Would you die so I can get my estate? That's what this statement is saying. I want my share of the estate. Now, he's a younger brother. He's only going to get one-third of it. The older brother, if there are two sons, he would have got two-thirds of it. The younger brother says, I wish you were dead. I want my share now. And a, Jesus is telling a parable here, and he just decides uh, to follow it along, and he gives him the estate. He says, so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, all his, the third of his, of his father's, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Las Vegas time. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus is painting a picture here to help these Pharisees understand something. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He's thinking in his mind, It'd be better off to be home. Even if my dad rejects me and if I have to work at home, I'll get something to eat. So he's walking home. Look at the next verse. But while he was still a long way off, while he's a dot in the distance, and he's coming towards home, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, I need to understand, too, in that culture, they wore these long robes. He had to hitch that thing up and, and run, which is not something elderly Jewish men do. He's a dot in the distance, barely can make him out. He picks up his loins here and he runs out to him. He kisses him. The son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Imagine in his arms he's crying and he's shaking. He's not worthy to be called your son anymore. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Do you see the father heart of God? I mean, Jesus is telling a story here, and it's a radical story if you stop and think about it. Remember I said I'm ruining it here a bit, but the Father is God, and that's what he thinks of people. People that you don't like. People that are messy. People that are messed up in all kinds of different things. Maybe they're, maybe they're thieves. Maybe they're all kinds of things that we would revile against. God's just waiting. He's sitting there. He's looking for them, and there's a dot in the distance. And that's with the Father heart of God. But there's more to this story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he said, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he is, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Father deals tenderly with him too. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And wonders of his love. Older brother, we have to celebrate. What was lost has been found. Romans 5.8, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Everybody in this room, in reality, is a younger brother. Everybody in this room is someone who squandered God's wealth. Some of you this morning can identify with the younger brother. That's me. That's me. I've done that. I've squandered God's wealth. I, I've not, I'm not worthy to be called his son. And what he wants from you is for you to come home. He wants you to come home. 
Well, you're, maybe you're at this point, you've wandered away so much, you're just a dot in the distance. He wants you to turn around. He wants you to come home. And when you do, he wants to embrace you. No matter where you're coming from, he wants to embrace you when you come home. Others of you in this room, even though in reality you're, young, you're a younger brother, actually you're acting like an older brother. Well, I've gone to church all my life. Those people don't have it together. What's wrong with them? I read my Bible. I tithe. I do all the right stuff. What's wrong with them? The word to you, too, is come home. It's harder for you to come home because location-wise, you're already there. He said, all I have is yours. It's always been yours. You, can have, you want a calf? Kill 10 of them. I don't care. It's harder for you to come home because you're already geographically there. But the same message as the younger brother is to you. Turn around and come home. Come home and you will feel the wonders of his love. Let's pray together. God, I identify with both the children in this parable. I have so squandered many, many things of yours. And for that, God, I, I apologize and I, I want to turn to you. I am just like the younger son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But God, having been a follower of you for now uh, 21 years, uh, there's a lot of older brother that has crept in. There's a lot of thinking I deserve to be loved, not that I'm happy to be loved. So Father, I just pray that you'd help me and others in this room who are in that boat that we would be able to turn around and come home. Come home to your love and bask in it and realize we're no better off than people who are just new in the faith, are just now coming, or maybe have turned their back and are now just coming back to Christ Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that they would come home this Christmas time. That they would come home. That you'd turn them for wherever they're going and even as I'm praying right now, that in their hearts, they would turn their heart towards you and they'd come home. And Lord God, would we feel you running out to us and holding us and kissing us and killing the fatted calf for us. You have an amazing father heart. Help us to see you in your majesty and in your Powerful love. We pray this all in Christ's name.